John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thank you, Andrew and choir. Let's pause in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we need to hear your voice. We need to respond in obedient and self-sacrificial love. Help us to learn more of the greatness of your heart toward your people as we consider your word together. To the honor of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. During the Second World War, a young soldier named David Webster wrote home to his mother, and that letter contained these words. Stop worrying about me. I joined the parachutists to fight I intend to fight. If necessary, I shall die fighting. But don't worry about this, because no war can be won without young men dying. Those things which are precious are saved only by sacrifice. As we begin a study of the concluding chapters of John's Gospel, you will note that here there is a line drawn, a demarcation from what has gone before. We read verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. A large section of teaching, John 13 to 17, which is called the Upper Room Discourse, that has been completed. Now, words will be replaced by actions. The passion, this awe-filled beauty of the death of the Son of God, as he submits himself to his Father's will, and he realizes his calling to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This now opens up to us. 
A line is drawn and a river is crossed. In the year 49 BC, Julius Caesar led his troops across a little muddy river in the northeast of Italy called the Rubicon. And as he did so, he uttered a now famous phrase in Latin, alia aecta est, the die is cast. And those two idioms, the, to cross the Rubicon and the die is cast, are, are still in our modern language today. They describe a, a decisive and irrevocable step that has been taken. And for Jesus in our text, he crosses his Rubicon. He crosses the brook Kidron. Now, it sounds rather quaint. But really, it was little more than an open sewer for the city. Shallow and stagnant for most of the year, but a raging torrent when the rains came. It's called Kidron, which in Hebrew means dark or or, or mourning. And it's very likely in those very moments as Jesus was crossing this little stream that its waters ran red with the blood of the Passover lambs. Thousands of lambs were sacrificed in the temple courts above and their blood, gallons and gallons of blood, would drain away by this water course through the the Negev, the desert, and on down to the Dead Sea. Jesus crosses the brook Kidron as its waters run red with blood. And John is never wasteful of his words. This is not merely some geographical footnote for us, not only some little eyewitness detail. John knows that as he is using this imagery of Jesus crossing the brook, he will evoke images in the minds of his first readers, those who were well steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And their minds would go to the the tragic day recorded in 2 Samuel 15, that day when Ahithophel, the trusted advisor, and Absalom, uh, David's first choice son, would betray him. They would mobilize the people to turn their backs on their king, and he would be rejected and would flee for his life from the city. And Jesus knew that soon the streets of Jerusalem would echo with the cries of the people recorded in John 19.15 that we have no king but Caesar. And his rejection, Jesus' role as king in Israel would be dismissed. And we need to understand that Jesus is making a decisive journey With a clear purpose in mind, the time for talking is over. It's time for action. It's time to initiate what has been determined before the beginning of time. So he's going to the garden. He's going to a familiar hangout, a place where he would often spend time with his disciples. He's going to a place where he knows that the betrayer will be able to find him. Have you ever tried to find somebody? Yes, I know now you can find on your phone and locate them and all this carry on if you know their mobile number. But in days before mobile phones, 
How would you find someone if you couldn't get the hold of them? Well, you would know their habits, you would know their routine, and we are creatures of habit. And think for yourself for a moment, if someone needed to urgently contact you right now, would they know that every Sunday at 12 noon, you will be together with the people of First Portadown in worship? You will always come and take your place here, so they would never hesitate to locate you here in this place. In the darkest days of the Troubles, and perhaps still at this time, uh, there were a large number of people who, for or who as members of the security forces or as prison officers, were required to be constantly changing their routine. They had to alter the routes and the times that they would go and come from work. They were often unable to be regular attenders at worship because they, they didn't want to form patterns of behavior that would play into the hands of those seeking to do them harm. That's common sense and practical wisdom. If you don't want to be found by those who mean to do you harm, don't follow a familiar pattern. Don't be in a regular haunt. But here we must understand that Jesus wants to be found. Jesus is the one who is ready to be sought. Verses 2 and 3, now Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So many ironies in these verses. Judas, the one who was lost, is the guide. Here comes a mob with torches and lanterns to seek and to capture the one who is himself the light of the world. Here they come heavily armed to take into custody the one who was the Prince of Peace. They send a large force to apprehend one man, one who could not be held by them unless he chose to give himself voluntarily into their hands. He is one who had at his disposal legions of angels should he choose to call on them. And just that solemn, tragic truth that if you choose to stand on the side of evil, you will almost always stand with the majority. So here is Judas. He is in the majority. He is among this huge crowd who has come. What we might describe or reporters might say today was heavy-handed policing. Hundreds of soldiers coming to take captive one man. And we read verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Throughout all that unfolds, Jesus remains the master. He is not caught off guard. He steps forward to be received by those who come to arrest him. He is ready to to be captured by these ruthless seekers. He wants to be found by them. Back in John chapter 6, the crowds wanted to 
capture Jesus, but they wanted to take him and they wanted to make him the king over them. But when they sought to do that, he slipped from their grasp. He evaded their plans for him. But now, here we see Jesus submitting to their intentions. These who have come to arrest him because he understands this is his father's will and this is his hour. When he's offered a crown, he slips away from the crowd. And when they seek to compel him to go to the cross, he steps forward to meet them. He gives himself up to them. And we must understand that it is only on his terms that this takes place. How many men does it take to bring one lamb to the slaughter? The answer here is none. No force was required. Jesus comes willingly. The only way they could bring him was because the time was right. This was the appointed hour. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis records for us that moment when Aslan gives himself in surrender. He writes, A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion piercing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemy. But it never came. There is a moment, even as he submits to their will, that Aslan's enemies are struck with fear. In the film version, Aslan gives a little growl and they car away from him. And in our text, Jesus says two words in Greek Ego emi, I am. When previously Jesus had spoken these words of himself in the temple courts, the crowds had picked up stones to stone him. They saw that he was speaking in their minds blasphemy. They knew exactly what he meant. They understood his intent that he was claiming to be the eternal, self-existent, ever-living God. The one through whom that bush burned and communicated uh, with Moses saying, I am. What a great mystery this is. Hundreds armed men come to apprehend the one and he speaks and says, what in our language is three letters, I am. And they draw back and they fall to the ground. Let me suggest to you that When anyone encounters, truly encounters Jesus and understands him to be God, one of two things will happen. Either they will fall on their faces in worship or they will fall on their backs in fear. These men fall away from Jesus in fear. What happened was that the veil of his glory for a moment cast aside that they could see the wonder of who he was. Well, we have no idea. Was his glory on display? We don't know, but his mercy was. 
Because at his words they merely fell to the ground. And they were not cast down into hell. Jesus was merciful to them. They came seeking Jesus, but we see that Jesus is ready to be sought. But I also want to note that Jesus here is the, the regardful shepherd. The regardful shepherd. Verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I confess that on occasions I can be so intent in what I'm doing. Hopefully it's something important, but I can be so intent that I, and what I'm doing that I, I sort of totally ignore whatever's happening in people's lives around me. But it was not so for Jesus. He's engaged in the most important act in all of history. But he's not so self-absorbed with his own troubles that he neglects those he cares for around him. He does not overlook the plight of his followers. In a little while, we'll see as Jesus hangs upon the cross, dying with gasping for breath, he still commits into care his grieving mother that she would be looked after by the apostle John. John 19, 26, 27. And here it's almost as if a negotiation is taking place. Jesus is, is instructing those who have come to arrest him. You can take me, but you have to let these others go. You can't have them. It appears that the hundreds have been sent to capture the one, give in to his demands. So that the words of his prayer in John 17, 12 would be fulfilled that not one has been lost except the son of destruction. And yes, in their time, each of the disciples would find their own execution. They would lose their lives for the cause of their master. But for these moments, God's servants are immortal until their work is done and their work was yet before them. And Jesus, the good shepherd, cares for his sheep. He looks after them. He keeps them from harm and he ensures that they have safety until that day when they will take up their own cross and they will lay down their own lives. Finally, we see this reckless swordsman the reckless swordsman. We have the intervention of Peter. As the men step forward to take Jesus into captivity, Peter steps forward and he swings his sword. You have to decide, was he such a skillful swordsman that he could simply wound this man by removing his ear? Or is it more... Likely that he was a rather incompetent swordsman. He tried to chop off his head and largely missed. What an enigma Peter is. Here he's ready on his own to stand against an entire army. He's going to go to battle with them, him and his little sword. All this to defend his Lord, and yet in such a short space of time, we will see him crumble before a servant girl and deny that he knows Jesus. No wonder we love him because he reminds us so often of our own inconsistencies. Don Carson comments, The blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. 
It's interesting as the gospel writers record this story, it's Dr. Luke who gives us the detail that Jesus then immediately healed the man's ear. It is John who had connections to the high priestly family, is the one who helps us with the understanding of who this was. He names him as Malchus. John was there, he saw this happen. And while there there may be things to admire in Peter's bravery, since he alone of 11 stepped forward to help, let's not misunderstand that as followers of Jesus Christ, it is not our responsibility neither to deny him nor to defend him. Jesus can look after himself. And Peter's vain attempt to save Jesus stands in opposition to the saving work that Jesus had already committed himself to do. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's a cup to be drunk. The cup is the punishment that the thoroughly just and utterly holy God has prepared for those who reject him as their king and refuse to submit their lives to his rule. Psalm 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Here is the wonder of the gospel. Here is good news declared that that this cup has been poured out for the faithless and the failures. People like Peter who got it all wrong, who didn't understand. People like you and me who are the wicked of the earth. We should drink from this cup. It is our cup. But Jesus steps between us and it. He takes it to himself. He, He drains the cup to its very dregs. And we see that the key point of this story is this. That Jesus did not submit himself to the soldiers. And he did not submit himself to the plotting of the religious leaders. He submits himself to his father's will. He does what God had always intended would happen. That because God so loved this world, he loved this world so much that he sent his son that we would not perish but have because of him eternal life. Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must bear our punishment. Greater love, said Jesus, has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. This act of self-sacrificial love, this laying down of a life for the benefit of others, is the only hope that's in this world. Archbishop William Temple said this, We are the world to whom our God comes forth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, saying, Who is it you want? The world is groping after its true leader. He offers himself. And the world, after yielding for a moment to the impact of his divinity, arrests him and crucifies him. Whom do you seek? Jesus? Jesus to crucify or Jesus to crown? 
Do you see that this one who is ready to be sought is saying to you? That the way to life is not hard to find. It's not cleverly concealed. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. Do you not see this regardful shepherd who says, Take me, but let them go free. Take me that they might be free. Nail me to their cross, that they might not suffer for their sins. Give me the cup that I might drink the bitterness that they deserve. David Webster was right when he wrote to his mom all those years ago. Those things which are precious are only saved by sacrifice. Here we see Jesus preparing to give himself the sacrifice for our sins so that we would be set free. We would be saved. May we make the only appropriate response to receive this gift and rejoice in it, celebrating God's great goodness to us in the love of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, on this Remembrance Sunday, may we remember your self-sacrificial love for us. As we pause and consider the service of others who gave themselves, we realize that there's no one who gave themselves like Jesus. For he gave himself for the undeserving, the unworthy, the sinful, the hard-hearted, the failures, the faithless. He gave himself for me, for us, that we might live. Lord, may we make the only fitting response to such immeasurable love by giving ourselves to him, by serving him, by praising him, by doing what he says, by going where he says. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love to us in Christ. May it create within us a great heart to serve you. To the honor and glory of that name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.